You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast, a political podcast from the News and Observer and NC Insider. If you were away last week like one of our panelists, well, you didn't really miss anything. There were a couple lawsuits, but those lawsuits brought us right back to the beginning. And, you know, to run it all down this week, I have Will Doran, Rashan Aish, and hopefully a caught up Colin Campbell, and I am Lauren Horsch. So if you didn't get the jokes at the front, Colin was on vacation all last week, and the rest of us were here to clean up whatever mess has happened in North Carolina politics. And I think Will probably had the most to clean up at most points, because he was the one writing about all of the lawsuits uh, between the Cooper administration and uh, the legislative leaders. What lawsuits did we have, Will? I feel like there was a new one every day, or there were developments every day. What happened? We have had so many lawsuits this election season. Uh, Previously, earlier this summer, we had lawsuits involving the Constitution Party and candidates they wanted to have on the ballot. We had a lawsuit involving Chris Anglin, the controversial Supreme Court candidate uh, who wanted to be on the ballot. Uh, Both Anglin and the Constitution Party won, uh, defeating the legislature on those, got their way for how the ballots are going to be set up. Um, But then last week, like you mentioned, the legislature got uh, two wins in court. Uh, Governor Roy Cooper had attempted to get two of the six constitutional amendments stricken from the ballot this November. The NAACP and some local environmental groups had targeted two different amendments. So in total, we had four of the six amendments being challenged you know, with these you know, groups, Cooper and the NAACP, trying to get them taken off the ballot. The Supreme Court in both cases, the North Carolina Supreme Court, said basically, no, we're not going to take these off the ballot. Uh, and, you know, hey, <laughs> these deadlines are fast approaching for getting things printed. The state needs to just hurry up and get this done because, you know, it, it takes a long time to print ballots. You have to do all of this quality control to make sure that the ballots actually work, that they have the right races on them so you don't have, you know, people in Durham voting for races in Greensboro or something like that. Um, and so the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to let these just go ahead. We've you know, reviewed the, the legal arguments and they don't really hold muster. Um, and so, yeah, so all, all of the amendments are going to be on the ballot after all these multiple days, multiple different lawsuits and multiple different courtrooms uh, had all of us reporters kind of running around everywhere except for Colin who was, you know, off enjoying uh, <laughs> vacation. <laughs> so, the, so the two the two constitutional amendments that were challenged by Cooper originally, they, they were taken off the ballot to start, correct? Correct. Uh, yeah. So Cooper won the first iteration of this mm-hmm. lawsuit, which forced the legislature to come back in August um, and rewrite the two amendments. Basically what he had successfully argued in court was that the language that the legislature had written to describe these amendments on the ballot was misleading. And that when voters go to the voting booth and read the ballot, they would have been misled as to what the amendments would actually do if they voted to either approve or deny them. And so the legislature rewrote those. Cooper sued again, saying that the legislature had not done enough and Cooper lost that trial. The judges said basically that uh, you know, his lawyers just failed to provide enough evidence to, to give incontrovertible proof that they were still misleading. 
and so he lost the the second lawsuit over the rewritten amendments. Uh, so uh, the the big change on that was uh, the the two amendments. One deals with the appointment of uh, judicial vacancies, um, and that one basically uh, right now the governor appoints judicial vacancies under the new system. In some cases, it would be up to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. In some cases, it would be up to the legislature. Um, so basically, it, it takes the power away from Cooper and distributes it to the other branches of government. Um, and the the original uh, concern about that one was that there's also some language that might help the legislature bypass the governor's veto in the future by you know, sticking the entire budget into a bill over judicial nominations, for instance. And so they got rid of that language to kind of clear up any legal concerns over that. Um, and so that helped that one pass in the second trial. And then the other amendment that Cooper had sued over was uh, one that would, the original version would have uh, given the legislature a lot more power and control over the Board of Elections and also a lot of other state boards and government that controlled various regulatory duties and things like that. And that was basically in direct response to a different Supreme Court case when they had tried to do that earlier, and that was ruled unconstitutional, so they were trying to amend the Constitution so that it would no longer be unconstitutional for them to take away that power. They, when they rewrote it, they got rid of all of the other stuff regarding the, the various and century boards, which I think would have affected hundreds of positions within state government. They got rid of all of that and just kept it strictly to the elections board. Um, and again, taking power away from the governor, giving that power to the legislature. Um, and then the amendment would also, if it passes, whittle the board down from nine members to eight members. And, and with that, you know, the, the election board amendment, doesn't that, I, mean, I think they were, there was some splitting of hairs in some of the arguments about that. So if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the General Assembly basically hands them a list, both from the majority and minority parties. They hand Cooper a list, and then Cooper has to pick from that list. Is that what was happening right. with this so, one? So the legislators can still say, you know, Cooper gets this appointment power, um, but he doesn't get to choose who he's appointing. He just gets this list that will probably have, you know, a couple names on it, and he gets to choose from those couple names. Yeah. So. And, and we're only going to see six constitutional amendments on the ballot, right? Because some Democrats were out there saying that we could potentially have the old, the old versions of the two rewritten constitutional amendments on the ballot, but we're only having six, right? Yeah, th there was this whole thing that some of the legislators were saying about how we might have both the old versions and the new versions. I can't see a world in which the Board of Elections allows that to happen, especially since the old versions were you know, lost in court. Um, so, yeah, but as I said, they are currently printing the ballots now, so well, yeah, I guess that we'll was, see. That was a big question during all of these lawsuits was, when can we print the ballots? And, you know, in all of this, too, was some question on the congressional district lines um, for the U.S., you know, our U.S. Congress seats. There was all sorts of other things with that. You wrote about that, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that, <laughs> sorry, that's Will a, wrote about all the lawsuits last <laughs> week. I insist on that uh, from uh, Brian Murphy, our colleague up in D.C., who is very helpful on the, the gerrymandering stuff. But yeah, so for people who missed that story uh, or want more information on that, you know, the, uh, the lines that we used to elect our 13 members of the U.S. House of Representatives were just all ruled unconstitutional as partisan gerrymanders. In this kind of long-running case that's been going back and forth between the, the federal 
district court three-judge panel that wants to call these unconstitutional, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't really want to set precedent on whether or not partisan gerrymandering is okay, um, but it, one way or the other. So it just kind of keeps kicking it back to the judges. The judges keep ruling it unconstitutional, sending it to the Supreme Court, they keep kicking back. So it's just kind of like ping-ponging back and forth at this point. Um, and so what we have here is that the judges just ruled all of these districts unconstitutional yet again in this case, and uh, the problem basically is that it happens so close to the election that the, the plaintiffs in the election, the people who won the argument that they're unconstitutional said, you know what, it's too close, we are just going to be forced to go ahead and have this election using the unconstitutional lines anyways because of tons of reasons, which I go into my article if you want to read all those. Reasonobserver.com. <laughs> reasons, go check it out. Um, and the court agreed um, and said, yeah, uh, we'll just have these under under the, the current lines, even though we found them unconstitutional, because all of the other options seem to be even worse. And, and for those of you curious about, you know, the timeline with, you know, the ballot, you know, not being allowed to be printed until early this week, I think they just started printing ballots. Um, there's, there's a state deadline where ballots have to be available for absentee voting 60 days, I do believe, before an election starts. But there's also a federal deadline, which is 45 days. Um, so we should hit that. We will hit that 45-day mark now that ballots are able to be printed. So September 22nd is, I do believe, the new starting date for absentee voting in North Carolina. So if you filed a request for an absentee ballot, you're still going to get that. Don't worry, you still will be able to vote. Questions are going to be, the constitutional amendments are going to be on there. Your congressional races are going to be on there. We have ballots. That's what's important, I think, at this point. Yeah, so um, some parts of it are still lagging. I went online uh, Thursday morning to see if I could see my own sample ballot, um, and it was not up yet. That the, the website hadn't been updated with what, you know, because you can go online to the Board of Elections website and you can figure out, you know, make sure that your voter registration is up to date with your address, figure out where your polling place is, see sample ballots. But uh, at least as of Thursday morning, those sample ballots were not yet online. So I'm sure they'll be up soon, but they've, they've got some other things they've got to work on. They're a bit busy over which there, we'll, Which yeah. we'll discuss a little bit later in this podcast. Um, but, you know, since we're on the topic of judicial, I mean, judicial constitutional amendments, I'm going to throw it over to Rashawn because uh, she had a fact check this week about one of the constitutional amendments, specifically the judicial appointment and selection um, constitutional amendment. So, Rashawn, what'd you fact check? So, Tim Moore, he was saying that most states actually do have some kind of merit selection, that very few states give the governor kind of most of the power in picking judges during, during judicial vacancies. What I found was he was right, or mostly right. So most states do actually have some kind of merit commission to help select um, judges during vacancies or even first full term, first full term whenever. Um, and so his proposal, what makes it different, or I guess the proposal in general, what makes it different than most states is that the General Assembly would have some role in picking people on the shortlist versus in most states the General Assembly isn't supposed to have a role based on the original Merit Selection Commission from Missouri. So they're not necessarily meeting the same standards as what most other states are doing, but he is right in saying that most other states do have a Merit Commission. 
Did you reach out to House Speaker Tim Moore about the fact check to kind of get his input on, you know, where did he get that fact? You know, where did those statistics come from? You know, what, what did he have to say? Um, they just provided me with a Ballotpedia page about where they found their information about merit commissions and things like that. And so the page that they pointed me to was just about general merit commissions and not, not necessarily what the one in North Carolina would be doing. Um, and along the lines of other constitutional amendments, we just had a emergency meeting um, of the North Carolina Constitutional Amendments Publication Commission, um, because now we have the final two constitutional amendments, they have to write these, these summaries. And Colin was at this meeting today, um, and he can run down kind of what these summaries were and where you will see these summaries. Yeah, so the summaries, uh, if you recall back to uh, July, this commission, which is consisting of two Democrats, one Republican. The Republican is Legislative Services Officer Paul Coble. He's on it with Attorney General Josh Stein and Secretary of State Elaine Marshall. Back in July, the plan was uh, under law they would create captions for the ballots. Uh, legislators decided they didn't want to give that power to two Democrats, so they took it away, and in that space on the ballot, it'll just say constitutional amendment. Um, but there's still a summary that uh, these, this commission is required to put up for each of the six constitutional amendments. It'll be available online. It'll be available at the Board of Elections locations for people who are wanting to read up on uh, what these uh, amendments actually do. Uh, so today they had the last of the six to deal with. It was the two probably most complex, most controversial ones dealing with the uh, governor's appointment powers for the State Board of Elections as well as the uh, judicial vacancies issue. Um, and there was a couple interesting points of discussion on this. Um, on neither of these summaries was there unanimous bipartisan agreement. Coble was opposed to uh, both of the final um, versions of these and uh, he was outvoted by Stein and Marshall. Uh, but there were a couple interesting points of disagreement. Some of it was a question of whether to include the hypothetical uh, potential outcomes of these amendments, not necessarily what, what's in the writing, but what could come up of them depending on how courts interpret the language. Uh, so on one, uh, it was the elections board, and there was a question of whether uh, legislators would be allowed to serve as members of the elections board if this passes. Uh, Josh Stein put forward an argument uh, that because the amendment makes the elections board not an executive, official executive commission, uh, part of the governor's uh, branch of government, then uh, the loss of the legal ruling by the Supreme Court a few years back uh, that keeps legislators off of um, commissions in the executive branch wouldn't apply in this case. Now, there's some uh, legislative staff attorneys uh, disputed that. They said they thought that the uh, Supreme Court ruling about that would apply here. So Paul Coble was very uh, concerned about including this. He um, made a joke about if we're going to include all this speculation, why not uh, mention the possibility of the zombie apocalypse uh, was, was his quote uh, during this meeting. Uh, the other uh, issue that uh, he had a problem with was including in the summary for uh, the judicial vacancies uh, amendment the possibility that the legislature uh, could, uh, if the amendment passes, come back and um, add two seats to the Supreme Court without any further constitutional action, and then they would be able to uh, appoint those uh, Supreme Court justices who would then uh, likely be Republicans. Um, that's language that's in there. Uh, Coble again thought that was too speculative. Uh, he wanted it taken out. It eventually got in there. And the uh, justification for including it, according to Stein, was that a few weeks back, Dallas Woodhouse, the executive director of the North Carolina Republican Party, uh, made a comment about, uh, depending on how the uh, some of these lawsuits uh, surrounding different elections issues, including, I think, the Anglin issue, 
um, that we talked about earlier, depending on how it went down, uh, that's one of the options that could be pursued. Uh, so Stein said that was made it enough of a hypothetical and that legally they could do that, that it was worth telling voters uh, that that's a potential consequence of approving this amendment. But again, Coble said that was too speculative. We also had a, a bit of a fact-checking issue uh, that, um, even though I'm not part of the PolitiFact team and haven't been, uh, I, I picked up on and, and asked Stein about this after the fact. The language on the uh, elections board thing uh, uses the term nonpartisan to describe the current ninth member of the board. Uh, currently, the ninth member is uh, appointed uh, by the governor with some suggestions from the other board members, and it currently is an unaffiliated person, Damon Sircosta, uh, but under the law, it doesn't, the person doesn't have to be unaffiliated. They just can't be one of the two major political parties, so not a Democrat, not a Republican, either unaffiliated or a member of the third party, but the language did not uh, include that. Um, Stein's office has since uh, recognized that uh, they've uh, perhaps made a mistake on that. I'm waiting to hear back if they actually plan to change the uh, language that's going to go out to voters on this or not, but Republicans have seized on that as, uh, uh, I think David Lewis put out a press release, one of the uh, House elections officials, um, saying that he thought this was uh, a sign of a misleading or uh, factually inaccurate uh, summaries that justified taking away the ballot captioning power from this commission. So sort of an interesting one-hour commission meeting, and I guess we won't be hearing from this commission until there's another round of constitutional amendments to uh, deal with in the future. Well, and aren't these summaries harder to write a little bit because there's no enacting language with these constitutional amendments? We're basically just getting the, you know, ballot question and then like a, like a little title on it. There's nothing to tell us what a judicial merit selection would actually look like because the General Assembly is going to do that later. If it yeah, passes. and in the past there have has been legislation um, passed to sort of say if voters approve this constitutional amendment, this law goes into effect and it implements that. Uh, in this case, the legislature's plans to uh, write that and pass it in a late November session, assuming these amendments pass. And that's something that uh, Elaine Marshall, the Secretary of State on the uh, commission, pointed out today that made it difficult for them to write these summaries because they don't have as much information as they've had in the past. She's been in this role for uh, quite a long time, has gone through this process many times before, and said this, this time it was particularly hard because you, you did get into some hypotheticals because uh, you couldn't say for certain exactly what's going to happen or how things might be interpreted if these amendments end up passing. That, that's one problem that I've heard raised by opponents of the voter ID amendment is that, that exact problem that we don't have, we don't know specifically what we're voting on uh, because the implementing legislation hasn't been written yet. You know, people will be voting on generally if they support the idea of voter ID or not, but we don't know any of the details, you know, whether there will be exceptions, what types of ID will be required, how the state's going to help people get ID if they don't have ID, things like that. Yeah, because the last time we had voter ID, there was a lot of concern over not allowing uh, college students' IDs to be used um, as an acceptable photo ID. Um, so, you know, theoretically, they could try to say, you have to have that real ID that it's been such a pain in the butt to get at the DMV, um, or you might, you know, they might just be really lax about it and say you can use your Costco membership card if it has a picture of it on it, or, you know, anything else you might have in your wallet that has a picture could work, or not, we'll see. I mean, there's no way to know until that bill rolls out. Yeah. And uh, you kind of set me up there, Colin. Oh, speaking, just, just tee it up, right. <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of real IDs, you recently got a, a public records request back uh, concerning DMV wait times. You, well, what was what was in that request? That yeah, you got? so I requested the wait times or average monthly wait times for different DMV locations across the state. Uh, and they sent that to me in a spreadsheet. 
Uh, and what I guess first stuck out was the caveat of this. They, they give you two numbers that they track. One is the amount of time it takes to be served. So once you actually uh, get to the front of the line and you're sitting with a driver's license examiner, how long it takes them to complete the transaction on average. And that's usually a pretty small amount of time. They seem fairly efficient. Uh, and the other number they track is the wait time. Uh, but that wait time is not the full wait time from when you get out of your car to when you actually get served. It's from when you get to the front of the line to draw a paper ticket to when your number gets called, which means that when you get these, this data, you'll hear you know, all these anecdotes we've heard over the last couple of months that uh, people have been waiting five, six, perhaps even all day uh, hours to uh, get to the DMV's front of the line. And in the records, it shows wait times of little over an hour in most cases, the worst case scenarios. Um, but what is noticeable is if you take that data and compare it to past months, uh, this past July, which is the most recent month we have data available for, um, had the largest number of hour plus average uh, wait times of any month since they started tracking it back in, in 2015. Uh, so it was actually about a third of the uh, offices around the state. Um, and what we've been hearing is that you know, A, uh, summer months are particularly bad, which seems to be the case every year. Uh, the data is available uh, as a result of people, uh, high school students and stuff, trying to get their uh, learner's permits and driver's licenses before school starts back. Um, but obviously the real ID has, has made things even worse um, this year with the push to people to bring in their five different forms of government identification to get the special ID that uh, you'll potentially need to fly if you don't have a passport or, or other uh, acceptable federal ID going forward. Uh, so that's made it worse. Um, what's interesting is you look at different locations, uh, the narrative we've been hearing is that the urban locations are the worst. Um, that is somewhat true, but not entirely. There's also a, a lot of the problem spots have been problem spots for years, even though they've been tracking the data and uh, claiming to have moved staff around to bad locations. Some particularly bad ones are uh, Lillington and Sanford, uh, which are not really urban areas. They're sort of close to an urban area. Um, As a former Sanford resident, I can confirm the DMV down there is terrible. Yeah, and that <laughs> apparently has been the case for years and uh, has not gotten fixed. So if you really want a short wait time, and there are places where the average wait time is still you know, 10 or 20 minutes according to this data. Uh, you wanna go about as far out as you can. So uh, Newland up in the mountains is evidently a place to go. Uh, Roanoke Rapids is pretty good. Halifax um, County represent. Yeah, <laughs> so I, the, the common denominator seems to be uh, middle of nowhere and or close to a border with another state. So the people in that other state aren't using that DMV office because they have to go to the one in their state. Um, so that's sort of where we're at. Um, I also was looking into some uh, history of the DMV under the McCrory administration. If you remember Governor McCrory's campaign back in, in 2012 when he pledged to fix the DMV, um, he made some uh, changes in that direction, including uh, adding temporary staff using lap salary money. That's something that evidently stopped happening after Cooper took over, uh, but has recently started being used again uh, in the last month or so as a result of uh, the reaction to these long wait times. Um, the uh, Cooper folks have also pointed out that they've started uh, checking people's um, documents when they're in line or when they first arrive to make sure you know they have everything they need and they don't wait three hours and then have to come home and come back and start the process all over again. That also was something that uh, was first rolled out in the uh, McCrory administration uh, and has presumably been around for a while. So some interesting uh, bits of information involving the, the DMV. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. Uh, legislators, I guess, Lauren, you were in a meeting recently mm -hmm. where uh, legislators said they intend to hold some hearings about the topic and, and continue to pursue the issue. Yeah, there's some real interest, in, interest from the General Assembly. We had a, a joint legislative 
Commission on Governmental Operations meet last week where Senator Tommy Tucker, who's actually a retiring senator from Union County, uh, he said, you know, we really need to look into the DMV wait times. And this is also coupled with uh, the discovery of what some Republicans are calling a secret DMV that was open for three days for like three hours a month um, at the DMV headquarters um, where state employees could sign up and go in and get their real ID or other services they needed. Um, and that was discovered by WBTV um, in Charlotte. And so that's, that's also been a big issue. Um, you know, how did this happen? Why was this allowed? And it was a training office. It wasn't just like some new fancy office they opened. It was a training office. But legislators really want to know, you know, why was that office operational beyond just training people to work, you know, the, the computer systems, know what documents to look for? And, you know, why are we having such, you know, what people would say outrageous wait times? Why are people standing out in the heat, you know, four to five, six hours in some cases? So we could see some some outcomes from the General Assembly. No actual subcommittee has been appointed to look into that yet, but maybe soon. You never know what these Yeah, I almost wonder if some of the outrage among legislators about the secret DMV is maybe that they didn't know about it because there was a story out of California's legislature where they actually had a secret DMV in the legislative building. And our uh, former colleague, Brian Anderson, who's now at the Sacramento Bee, had been reporting that story and the, the outrage in California over that. Here it seems like the secret DMV was for random state employees and, and not necessarily the, the big VIPs, although I guess some of them may have been agency heads or something. Yeah. Well, I don't have the list of who would have gotten IDs there, nor do I think that would be even public record. Yeah, but. I think actually WBTV has been trying to get a hold of the list of who got to enjoy the uh, secret DMV, and they've not been able to get access to that list. The world may never know. <laughs> but, you know, now that we're, you know, kind of out of the, like, summer heat, we we're, there's there's a lot more stuff going on with the, the elections, because that's where, how many days away from the election? We're like a month. Wait, no, two, two months. months. I don't a little know over a month is. probably from early voting. I don't, I don't. And, um, absentee yeah. voting could start as soon as those ballots get ready to go. Yes. Well, this week, just yesterday, um, it was announced that um, on Friday, um, ICE, the Immigration Custom Enforcement, uh, through the U.S. Attorney's Office of the, the Eastern District here in North Carolina, had subpoenaed 44, county, 44 counties' um, Board of Elections as well as the state board for voting records, and that includes like voter rolls and absentee ballots. Um, and this is all part of, you know, a crackdown on people who aren't supposed to, you know, voter fraud, people who aren't supposed to be voting. We recently had 19 people charged and indicted for um, illegally voting. Um, and this was all out of a grand jury in Wilmington, if I remember correctly. Um, but this is still kind of a moving, developing story because I do believe the U.S. District Attorney has ruled that the subpoenas, which were supposed to be due September 25th, can now wait until January 2019 if the Board of Elections agrees to not destroy any records or there's there's all sorts of moving parts. So I don't remember the exact letter now. Yeah, I have it in front of me. It sort of addresses the issue, I guess, of having to get these documents ready while also preparing for the election, which uh, a lot of these boards of elections said they really just didn't have the bandwidth to do. their small offices with, with small staffs. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently we're talking like millions of different documents. I think, I think Josh Lawson said it was just from the state alone, it would be 15 million documents plus, you know, another 2 million from some other counties. Like it's just this close to an election that was really burdensome and, 
you know, we're already behind. So there was, I think that would have put us, you know, weeks behind because that would have to, you know, they'd have to prioritize that over ballots at some point. And well, and one thing I think that had concerned a lot of people about this, in addition to the timing, which, as you mentioned, has now been moved back to kind of give more of a cushion, some breathing room for the, the boards of elections, was that one thing that uh, the, uh, the district attorney and the ICE were looking for wasn't just voter registrations, but were individual ballots, at, you know, that had votes on it. So basically meaning that they would be able to tell like which individuals voted for which candidates and be able to trace all of that. And a lot of people thought that that was, you know, potentially foreshadowing some intimidation or strange intelligence gathering or something like that. But uh, so, we'll, you know, we'll see if that kind of gets rolled well, and back. I think, or, and I think that if I remember correctly from just skimming the, the letter that was just sent out today, um, you know, they're going to redact that. So if, if, you know, if they comply with his subpoena, you know, the, the boards of elections can, you know, redact all that information. They just want to know who voted. They don't want to know who voted for who. That's not what they're, they're trying to find out. So that is, that is a good outcome for those, of those people who were worried about potentially having, you know, the government know who they voted for during what election. Right. Yeah. So th there's I'm still not sure why they need the ballots, because if it's a matter of figuring out who voted in what election, that information is actually online. I can, I can plug in Will's name and I can find out on the website which elections he cast ballots in uh, and then I can probably, if I'm ICE, I could use another database to see if he's legally allowed to vote as a U.S. citizen, but mm -hmm. yeah, apparently they want the document, paperwork yeah. trail as well for whatever reason. Yeah, North Carolina has been great about that. I remember when uh, Chris Kobach was on his voter commission or trying to voter integrity commission or whatever that name was, you know, they, they said, you know, we don't need to technically give you all these because it's already public record. You can go find it yourself. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what the outcome of that is and what eventually happens, but we're going to have some time to wait. And while we wait, I think we're going to go to Headliner of the Week. 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 Who's hot? Welcome back for everyone's favorite Domecast set segment headliner of the week where we detail who we think is the best person place or a thing in North Carolina politics or otherwise I think I'm going to start with Colin since he was technically gone for most of this yeah so I am going back and I'm going to cite other people's reporting that I'm just reading this week because I was gone last week um, and was not doing any reporting um, but my pick this week is superintendent of public instruction Mark Johnson who is uh, facing some questions uh, this week from the State Board of Education, which uh, he often doesn't get along with, over his uh, $6 million purchase of new iPads for teachers. This was uh, announced a couple months back that uh, he had bought all these iPads that were going to teachers using some unspent money that they'd found. Um, and then last week, uh, NC Policy Watch, the uh, news arm of the left-leaning uh, NC Justice Center, uh, had a big report on this topic uh, and found that the purchase process for these iPads didn't include any competitive bids from other vendors and the, the purchase actually came after uh, Mark Johnson had gone with some top uh, legislative budget writers to visit uh, Apple's headquarters out in California in a trip that was actually funded by Apple. Uh, so there's apparently some ethical uh, questions being raised uh, about this purchase as a result. Um, and it was apparently a topic for discussion this week at the State Board of Ed, according to uh, our reporter, Kern Huey, and some reporters from uh, Education NC who were there. Um, and according to them, uh, Johnson was defending the purchase, saying that it was made through an existing state contract. So for um, 
getting a little uh, unwanted negative attention for this iPad uh, situation over at the Department of Public Instruction. Uh, Mark Johnson is my pick this week. Okay, Mark Johnson in the case of the $6 million iPads in the hat for headliner of the week. Will, what's your headliner? I've got a deep cut for you this time, uh, Mike Sprayberry. <gasps> Who is Mike Sprayberry? Tell me more. <laughs> in addition to having a great name, uh, he is the Cooper administration official who is in charge of emergency management response for the state. And the Cooper administration had been getting some flack for the past several months, from mainly from Republican politicians, about the state's response to Hurricane Matthew and disaster funding. Uh, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on disaster relief, but hadn't spent any money on housing relief, helping people who had had their homes damaged either uh, you know, get the money that they were due for repairs or for rebuilding their homes. And the legislature actually started a, a new committee to investigate this. But on Tuesday, um, Mike Sprayberry got to announce that some of that housing money had finally started rolling into North Carolina. We finally got all of the paperwork signed off by the federal government, which we'd been waiting on for this, and um, four counties in eastern North Carolina, uh, basically from uh, the South Carolina border in Robeson County up through Fayetteville, Goldsboro, Rocky Mount. Uh, there are two dozen families that are starting to receive money. They're just the first wave in this. There's $236 million that's eventually going to be funneled into that area. Uh, through the state from the federal government. Uh, this first round was, uh, I think, just a little under $300,000 for those families. So definitely nothing to sneeze at. Um, and I'm sure the Cooper administration is very happy about this news. Um, and I'm sure that the families in East North Carolina are even happier. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's some much needed good news in that area that's been hit by hurricanes and just all sorts of other disasters. Um, Last but not least, Rashawn, who's your headliner? Um, it's going to be Bob Woodward, the Watergate journalist, because he's got this book coming out, in case you haven't seen it all over social media, about the Trump presidency and all the secrets of it, like one of the letters that someone swiped from Trump's desk to not get rid of trade deals with South Korea got leaked. So... It's going to be great. And didn't, was I, maybe I saw Will retweet this, but I think there's a passage about um, North Carolina representative, or he's oh, a yeah. U.S. congressman, uh, Mark Meadows. Yeah, he that is actually maybe the subject of an upcoming News and Observer article. So oh, stay sorry, tuned spoiler alert, that, spoiler uh, alert, guys. <laughs> if we're able to confirm this or not. Um, but yeah, um, according to uh, Bob Woodward's book, uh, Mark Meadows was trying to basically orchestrate a coup against. Paul Ryan, uh, with the help of Steve Bannon, within, I think the book reported something like within 24 hours of Trump's yeah. election or inauguration, I forget which one it was, they were trying to oust Paul Ryan as speaker and install either Meadows or one of his allies. Oh my god. So, so is this book out yet, Rasha? It's coming out on September 11th. Take that as you will. <laughs> but people are just like, so how are are there like advanced copies? Is Bob Woodward just leaking out all of these crazy excerpts? Like, what do we? I mean, I think there's some advanced copies out there for you know for book reviews and okay. people like that. And um, I mean, people also gave Bob Woodward these you know not so. I mean, now they're not confidential, mm -hmm. but at one point were. So I'm sure someone can get their hands on them now too. Well, politics is crazy all over the place, <laughs> not just North Carolina. <laughs> Well, so we have Mark Johnson, Mike Sprayberry, and Bob Woodward in the hat for Headliner of the Week this week. 
And I think we need a little bit of good news, so I'm going to go with Mike Sprayberry and some Hurricane Matthew relief since it's much-needed news to eastern North Carolina counties. And, well, with that, I am Lauren Horsch with Colin Campbell, Rashawn Aish, and Will Doran, and we are part of the News and Observer and NC Insider. Have a good rest of your week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.